Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. This week on Polygamer... It's not that one game can possibly be some transformative, empowering juggernaut. We're doing this so that the aggregate weight of all the games that someone plays over their lifetime makes their life better. That was Chris Barney, computer game developer and sociologist. I'll be speaking with him in just a few moments, but first, some thoughts and updates on equality and diversity in the gaming industry. I've been thinking about our most recent episode, featuring Russ Pitts and Susan Arndt, founders of Take This, a nonprofit mental health resource for the gaming community. Prompted not by any feedback, but just by my own reflection, it occurs to me that I should probably clarify the fact that I am not a mental health counselor or psychologist, nor do I have any training in that area. Further, I should point out that my opinions are solely mine and do not represent those of any industry or organization or company with which I may or may not be affiliated. Similarly, my guests' opinions do not necessarily reflect my own, nor necessarily those of their own employers. For example, this week I'll be speaking with a gentleman who is a game developer, but he is not speaking on behalf of the developer he is employed by. That is simply the experience that lends him some insight into the industry. Also on the subject of the Take This interview, I don't think I gave sufficient credit to Miss Susan Arndt, the guest on that episode, and also on the previous episode where she spoke on the F-Word panel from PAX Prime. If it were not for Susan, you would not be listening to this podcast because this podcast would not exist. This podcast is a direct result of my moderation of a panel at PAX East 2014 called Sex, Sexy, and Sexism, Fixing Gender Inequality in Gaming. And that panel might not have happened had Susan not accepted my invitation to appear on that panel. She was the first person to do so, and was the linchpin that allowed me to proceed with my pitch to host that panel at all. The same is true for all the other panelists, Tifa Robles, Brianna Wu, and Dwayne DeFore. Without any of them, that panel would not have happened, and this podcast would not have happened. And I'm very much indebted to them. And that is why I'm a little pissed off that the internet has turned their sights on Brianna Wu and decided to threaten her out of her own home for being an outspoken proponent of women in gaming. I don't care who is doing this. I don't care what group is doing it. I don't care what hashtag they use. There is never any excuse to treat another human being as anything less than that. I thought that what happened to Zoe Quinn in late August was the worst of it. And then I saw other writers like Maddie Bryce and Jen Frank get taken out of the industry. And I thought, okay, now we're finally past the worst of it. Now this is hitting really close to home. I don't need to evangelize to the listeners of this podcast. Most of you, if you are not already on the side of equality and diversity and humanity in the gaming industry, then you're at least curious about it. You're listening to this show because you're as ignorant as I am, and you're invested in learning more not about just the community and the industry, but also the culture and the society in which those things and we as its members exist. Me hosting Polygamer is my small attempt at trying to make this world a better place and trying to make us better people. Because we can talk about how Twitter needs to be more responsive to taking down threats. And they do need to do that. But ultimately, this is not a technological issue. This is not the fact that the internet allows people to be anonymous dickwads. The problem is that people are choosing to use the internet that way, and we need to get people to change. And the only way to do that, the only way I know how to do that, is to engage in dialogue and discussion and education. 
and to get people thinking and feeling. That is not to diminish the value of technological approaches to solving these problems, though, and the small part that I've done to aid in that is a feature story that I have written for ComputerWorld.com. There are a variety of services out there like Spokio.com, Pipple.com, and Whitepages.com that collect public information about you, including your name, email address, postal address, and phone number, and make those records available to anybody who searches for it or pays for it. However, you do have the right to opt out of those databases and have your information removed and obscured. And my feature story describes some of the most common databases in which those records can be found and how you can opt out of them. If that story has already been published by the time this episode airs, as I hope it will be, then there will be a link in the show notes. If it has not yet been published, then the show notes will be amended later on with a link to that story. I hope that my friends and fellow gamers find this information useful in protecting themselves and disempowering online trolls from taking their threats offline. So on that rather heavy note, I think it's time to move on to this week's episode, which is probably one of the most intellectual episodes we've had thus far, or at least it was for me, because it's a subject on which I know very little, and thus I really felt the need to try to keep up. I hope I did a good job. But then again, in the very first episode of Polygamer, I did say what makes me the prime candidate to host this show is the fact that I am ignorant, and thus am a sponge by which to learn all these things and ask the questions that everybody else, I hope, is wondering too. We've discussed sexism, racism, cultural gatekeeping, and a lot of other issues. This week we're going to be talking about the games themselves, which is a fascinating topic, of course, because it's what brought us into the industry in the first place. So stay tuned, listen to this great episode. If you have any follow-up questions you wish I would have asked, I'm happy to follow up with the guest and air those answers in a future episode. So go ahead and send feedback to feedback at polygamer.net or visit the website polygamer.net where you can find this episode and show notes and click on the send voicemail button to record a clip that we'll play in a future episode. Either way, thank you for listening and for being one of the good guys. Today we're going to be speaking about the nature and purpose of games, and joining us to speak on that topic is Mr. Chris Barney. Hello, Chris. Hi there. Welcome to Polygamer, where two straight white men talk about equality and diversity in gaming. There is a little irony in that. (laughs) But Polygamer actually examines the social values and structures in the gaming industry and community, and today we're going to be talking about how games can reinforce, perpetuate, or change those same values. So who are you to be speaking about this topic? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Chris Barney. Um, I'm a developer on the, uh, the kids' game Pop Tropica. Uh, my background is in computer science and in sociology, and I've been an active member of the larger game development community for you know going on 10 years. Yeah, we met at Boston Fig, held at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just last month in September. And our connection originally arose in the fact that we discovered that we share a common former employer. Not that that's relevant to this talk, but it was neat to see you preparing your slides for a talk I was already going to be attending later that day. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Yeah, I I worked uh, outside of the gaming industry for a number of years uh, in uh, various different uh, web development positions. Now, you mentioned that your academic background, at least, is in computer science and sociology. Those are two fields I don't often see associated with each other. What were you hoping to accomplish when you pursued those fields? Well, I've always been interested in people playing games, um, both collectively as in the gaming community and in smaller groups like playing co-op, multiplayer, massively multiplayer games. And the university I went to had a really strong focus on being cross-disciplinary. So my advisors encouraged me to 
find another angle to look at my interests through. And given what I was interested in about games and game development, sociology was uh, the natural choice for me. So that would lead into your talk at Boston Fig, which was all about social capital. Now, for those of us without a strong background in sociology, can you give a little bit of background on what that means, social capital? Sure. Uh, the term's been around for you know more than a, a hundred years um, it, from the early days of, of sociology, um, although the, the term itself only became uh, codified somewhat later. Um, it's a sociological term for the resources, norms, and values shared by virtue of belonging to a particular social group uh, and the sense of entitlement to the privileges that are granted by that membership. So it's the resources themselves, be that money or time or reputation, the awareness of those resources, and the access to the resources, either through personal connections or through institutional structures, and the belief that you have a right to access them. Is social capital something that's granted by a demographic you're born into or by a social community you join, such as gamers? Yes. Social capital comes from everywhere and is is taken from everywhere. Largely, your social capital, um, the bulk of it that you're going to possess, comes from the class that you're born into. It's most strongly transferred from your parents, uh, from your peer group, but you get it from every group you interact with throughout your life. So, you know, going to Harvard is going to grant you a certain type of social capital. You know, working for a game development company is going to grant you a certain type of social capital. Being a minority or, you know, of a different gender is going to restrict your access to some forms of social capital and grant you access to other forms. This reminds me a bit of Peggy McIntosh's essay about white privilege, unpacking the invisible backpack, about how certain groups have privilege, whether or not they even realize it. Absolutely. And um, you, you have uh, caught on to the fact that social capital is the, the structure that underlies a lot of the inequality that exists in society. And it's easy to say, well, then social capital must be bad. But it's a neutral force, just like money is a neutral force. I mean, people say money is the root of all evil as if there was no evil before people had a complex economy. So social capital is a mechanism by which inequality is enforced, but it's also a mechanism by which inequality can be overcome. Okay, I know how to use money. I know I can give it to people freely or I can barter with it in exchange for something else. And you've demonstrated some ways in which one can gain social capital or be born into it. How does one give social capital? One can give social capital by, you know, choosing to interact with someone. Um, you gain it from, you know, your parents when they convince you that you have the right to ask for a bank loan to buy a house or when um, your teacher, you know, reward you for being good at a particular subject and you begin to have the belief that you should pursue that. I mean, it's clearly this very ephemeral thing, but in terms of a social structure, it un underlies a large amount of the function of society, or at least it's a lens through which we can view that function and understand it. You talked about how working as a game developer for one company or another, or even just being a gamer, might give you social capital. And previous episodes of Polygamer have talked about how certain demographics are represented in those games, but what does all this have to do with social capital? What do, how do games give or take or represent social capital? I think that games are engines of social capital. 
that games, their essential nature is to teach something. You know, for instance, um, a classic game like chess teaches strategy. It doesn't teach how to engage in field warfare, right? It's, it's what it's conveying is more abstract than the literal interpretation of the game. What you're gaining from it is an under, understanding of how to manipulate expected patterns of behavior to your advantage. So, you know, uh, children's games like playing house or playing cops and robbers, they're teaching the mechanisms by which our society functions for better or worse. And the very understanding of what those mechanisms are is a form of social capital. It allows you to engage with them. So social capital in a small group is very personal. You go out and you engage with people who have social capital, you know, the, your, your elders, people in the field that you're interested in, and you do things for them, you gain their respect, and then when you need something, they're able to grant it um, to you. Rather than that kind of system breaking down when you start looking at larger and larger groups of people, uh, it scales up, it becomes institutional. So in a complex post-industrial society like ours, there's large amounts of social capital that are available just from an understanding of how to engage with the large institutional structures that can provide benefit. That would be the, you know, understanding how you should dress when you go into a bank to ask for a loan, understanding what a reasonable amount to ask for is, believing that that's something that, that someone would give you. Obviously, there's a lot of other factors that go into that. And I'm not saying that, well, if you believe you can, suddenly you can you know, disregard the limitations on your social class, but having social capital can help you access those, those institutional interfaces. You talked about how chess is a very abstract form of teaching somebody something. It's not teaching you literally war. Sure. And, and a lot of games, some are more abstract than others, like playing house might teach traditional gender roles, or cops and robbers might teach enforcement of the existing legal system mm-hmm. and law enforcement. But a lot of video games fall closer to chess than they do to house or cops and robbers in terms of abstractness, games like Candy Crush or Super Mario World. So what sort of social capital values are inherent in video games? It really depends a lot on the game. If you look at, I mean, an abstract game like Candy Crush, you know, is the worst example of what games can do. But even in terms of that, I would say that the, its strongest messages are in its deep mechanics, the fact that it's designed to manipulate you, and a lot of its lessons aren't necessarily positive ones, that you're presented with a pinch level that you don't know, but really this level is intended for you not to be able to beat it unless you pay the people in charge of the system to let you beat it, you know, unless you buy those extra moves or buy those you know, specific pieces for the game. So, you know, when you start thinking about some free-to-play games in that way, they can be pretty dark. You know, other games are a lot, a lot more straightforward. You know, you you can say, you know, something like, well, how does a game like Mario Brothers, you know, how can that have, um, how can that have a, a meaning to it? It's just a platformer. But you know, you're you look at the premise of the game, and your goal is to rescue a princess who keeps being taken, you know, without agency from castle to castle. You look at a more modern rendition of that, say, Super Mario World 3D, 
And, you know, if you look at the website for it, you see, you know, one of the downloadable posters is um, Princess Peach saying, I'm not in another castle. You know, we've, we're trying to move beyond that. At the same time, you look at the um, one of the goals of the game is to rescue small pixie girls that are being kept in jars. So, you know, there's all of these different um, layers to what's going on, whether it be the mechanical layer conveying meaning or the story that the game is wrapped in. And then you have games that are much more intentional in trying to, you know, to convey some some purpose. You know, something like Gone Home, where, you know, it's about family and growing up and leaving things behind. And, the you know, the choices you make and what you give up for your path in life. Most of the games you describe, discounting Gone Home, you talk about how Candy Crush is one of the worst examples there is, or how Super Mario 3D World can represent various forms of sexism. It sounds like... We both love video games, but it sounds like you don't have a high opinion of what they have so far accomplished with their social capital. I think that that it's been a mixed bag, that there's been a lot of, of games that have done fantastic things. You know, in the abstract, if you look at any game with a a quest structure, whether you're, you know, the, the beat-down farmer who rises up against the invading armies and ends up becoming the hero of the land and discovers that, you know, he has the potential to grow and advance and level and, you know, access resources that are available to him through, you know, training with the blacksmith in town or fulfilling the needs of various different quest givers in order to uh, advance. There's so many games that follow that pattern that are really reinforcing upward social mobility and reinforcing agency so it's really been a mixed bag, and we're just really beginning to explore this medium. I don't hold grudges against Super Mario Brothers, right? I grew up on it, and it obviously, or hopefully obviously didn't make me into a sexist monster. And I don't think that it had the agenda of, um, of conveying sexism. I think that it was a casual, harmless choice that was made, or a choice that was seen as harmless that was made by the developers you know, to reinforce the structure of the game, but it unconsciously reinforced a whole bunch of of social attitudes, and that that's something that we need to be aware of. One of the things you said in your presentation was that all games have social capital, whether or not we think they do. If we think they don't, then we're wrong. And it sounds like when we think that they don't have social capital, the games that we create, we are imbuing them, but it's at a subconscious or unconscious level, like Super Mario Brothers, where they may not have intended to do it, but the game, by its very nature, will have some element of social capital in it. Yeah, I think that that's true. And it's just, it's something that we need to, to really be conscious of. You know, when I say, again, when I say a game has an agenda, I'm not saying that the game developer has a conscious agenda. I don't think Nintendo is being anti-feminist, but... When you're, but even when you're not trying to make a game about something, you know, you're echoing your views and often your unconscious views. What I was saying in my talk is, you know, that we have to be conscious about those choices because every choice we make in designing a game, even if we think that there's, there's not a meaning behind it, is going to teach something, is going to convey or reinforce something. Um, we need to be aware of that and make those choices intentional. And that's where the potential of games lies. 
It's true that Nintendo probably makes games that represent and reflect their own values, which can be very different from our own. And I think that's true for most developers, regardless of where they come from or their age, which probably explains why there are so many straight, white, cisgendered men as protagonists in video games, because that probably describes the majority of game developers out there. They're making characters that they can identify with and which represent them. One of the things you said in your talk was, we let the player inhabit and control a character that we invest with social capital in the game world. And in our current society, the one in which you and I are speaking, the demographic with the most social capital is the straight, white, cisgendered male. So what does that mean for the demographics of video games? We are seeing a more vocal movement to include minorities and women in gaming and have those characters represented in our games. What is that doing to the social capital of games? So uh, first to to address the fact that most game developers are white men, that has overwhelmingly been true in the past. And it's, you know, slowly becoming less and less true. Attending GDC and um, Game Loop and PAX um, Dev over the past decade, you know, I've seen the numbers of female and gay and trans developers grow and the number of white male developers that are developing games grow in individually in their sort of awareness of the diversity of the world. And I think we see that reflected a lot in the games that are coming out of the indie community lately and that have been meeting with, you know, ongoing success. And I think that that is something that isn't going to be missed by the economically focused larger game companies. We're going to start seeing them producing games for those demographics as well as they see those demographics, you know, kickstarting games for millions of dollars. You know, it, it's showing them that people are willing to and have a desire to play those kind of games. But in terms of um, marginalized voices uh, or demographics in games, I think it really depends a lot on what the game is and what the goal of the game is. I mean, is the protagonist in the game overcoming the odds that are stacked against them in order to succeed in the gaming world? I mean, that case is pretty clear. That's going to both engender understanding and empathy in people outside of that demographic that are playing the game. And it's going to show people from that demographic examples in that game of someone of their um, class or race or gender succeeding. Um, you know, are the characters in the game's origins irrelevant to the game? You know, say Portal doesn't really have a direct effect on the game. But even just seeing like someone who's like you in public media can have a really powerful emotional effect. I mean, we as white men see that all the time. Some gamers respond badly when they're then forced to play a game that they're interested in from a different perspective. But, you know, I mean, I really, given the preponderance of white men in, in as game pr um, protagonists that's i don't think that's a good reason to say we shouldn't make a more diverse games you know so what about a game where the player character is marginalized and can't succeed i i can't think of a game like that right now but i'd like to play one you know if you have a game like that you'd have to look at it look at its target audience you know was a game like that made by a racist or sexist group as propaganda or you know, when having the target of an affluent um, straight male audience, or was it something that was made with the target audience of, um, you know, the group that is, if it was made with the target audience of the group that was in it, sorry, then 
it could be seen as propaganda showing somebody that they can't succeed. If it was made to target uh, a straight white male audience, then maybe it was made to engender empathy and understanding, in which case it is generating social capital because the target audience, the white male that's playing it, is then going to have greater understanding and empathy and be more ready to distribute social capital to that group. Because, you know, as, as you pointed out, in society as we live in it, white men hold a disproportionate amount of the power and social capital. And just like, you know, the 1% holding a disproportionate amount of, of economic capital, that's something that redistribution will benefit the people who, who don't have the capital. When I spoke with Sherry Grainer Ray in an earlier episode of Polygamers, she described the pyramid of power in which individuals who have that disproportionate amount of social capital may not be happy about stepping down and temporarily assuming the role lower in the pyramid of somebody with less social capital, but they are nonetheless capable of doing so, whereas people lower in the pyramid are uncomfortable going higher up. She was using this as an argument to say that men may be more comfortable playing as female characters in a game than women are playing male characters because a woman playing a male character is going up in the pyramid of power to a more privileged role. But in my observation, which admittedly is probably not very informed, it seems to me that there is a lot of uprising in the gaming community right now from a what I would hope is a vocal minority of men who are unwilling to play as female characters, and they see that as potentially threatening. So it seems to me like it's almost the opposite of what Sherry Grainer Ray described, where men are unwilling to take a step down in the pyramid of power. What does your background in sociology say about that? I think there's something more complicated going on there. You know, if you look at uh, MMOs or games in which you you create your own character, you'll see a lot of guys creating female characters and playing them for a variety of different reasons, you know, from the sort of pure aesthetic reasons to, you know, being curious as to how they'll be treated differently or identifying with that gender in some way and, and being interested in, in pursuing that, that curiosity or, you know, that uh, aspect of themselves. But when you have a game where you're being forced into the role of a main character by the, or of a, a character of a different gender than you or race or class then that can be uncomfortable, particularly for people higher up the social ladder. It can feel like they're being forced into a disadvantaged position. And, you know, if you're not thinking about that and sort of aware of that's the, the experience is being presented to you, it could feel, you know, threatening as if someone's trying to take something from you. And yeah, there's there's been a lot of uh, response to that lately. And, you know, I think that there's a portion of the gaming community that feels very threatened uh, and is behaving extremely badly because of that. If that's the case, then that may have economic repercussions by games featuring female protagonists not selling well, which, as you mentioned earlier, will be noticed by the big publishers. So how do we get better representation of games in a way that isn't threatening to a company's bottom line? Um, I think it's something where you have to look at the target audience. You know, if you're making a game targeted at, you know, white male teenagers and you've done your market research and you know that your Call of Duty clone is going to get a certain Metacritic rating and is going to focus on that demographic, then, you know, it's entirely possible that if you put in a female main character, that that would make that game be less successful towards that target demographic. But 
you know, perhaps it would be more successful targeted towards a bunch of, of female gamers who would like to play a game where they can see themselves in it. If you did that market research and your expectation was that you were marketing that game to those people, you knew approximately how many of them you were or there were, you would see those people buying that game in larger numbers than they would buy a game with a male protagonist. And, you know, if you were making a game like Gone Home that's targeting a, a relatively small demographic made for a relatively small amount of money, you would find a lot of success in that kind of a game. So, you know, again, it's, it certainly relates to target audience. And not every game is going to fall into that, into that trap. You have a game like the most recent Tomb Raider that, you know, has, has got a pretty strong representation of a female main character and is embraced by, you know, men and women alike because the character is strong and charismatic and fun to play. And it's a story that people of both genders want to hear. One of the questions that came up from the audience during your Boston Fig Talk was from, I think, a developer who wanted to make these kinds of games that reinforce more diverse social values and have social capital, but he was not the one responsible for the bottom line. He wanted to make one kind of game, and the company, as a larger institution, as an organization, wasn't necessarily concerned with social capital. They were concerned with profit, as many companies are. So what do you say to a developer who has these conflicting requirements and priorities. They need a paycheck, but they also want to make a difference. Right. That's, it's a difficult position to be in. A lot of people, you know, choose to leave that company and pursue indie development. But, you know, that's a hard choice and not one that's, that's available to everybody having different, you know, family responsibilities or whatever. You know, you, you can be part of that larger company if you, you know, if it aligns with your beliefs in other ways and work to push it in the right direction, you know, work to make the other characters in the game that are not the protagonist more three-dimensional and more engaging, to make all of the smaller choices that you do have responsibility for contribute to the game and contribute to your understanding of game design, you know, in, in smaller ways. You can look for a game company that, you know, has goals that align with yours more strongly. If all of the good developers are going to game companies that are willing to produce more sophisticated, rich, uh, diverse games, then those games are going to be better and over time things will shift. But there's not an easy answer. And, you know, you can spend your career pushing really hard against a stone wall and getting really frustrated. I, I know plenty of developers who are really tired of the intractability of the monetary drive. There was another thing that Sherry Grainer Ray said in, as a way to make gender-inclusive games, which was emotional buy-in. She said that that's very important to female gamers, and in the past decade, they have gotten that through the social element that has arisen from mobile and casual games and Facebook games. One of the things you point out in your presentation was the more we care about a game or a character, the more we take away, which reinforces her own suggestion for making gender-inclusive games. So does emotional buy-in in a game have cross-gender consequences? I absolutely think that uh, by fo focusing on emotional buy-in that you generate uh, cross-gender appeal. I can't speak to its effect on women, but as a male gamer hitting something like my 35th year of playing games, it's something that I want. There's a lot of different ways to achieve those ends and a lot of different emotions that can cause you to invest in a game. You know, it can be achieved through having complex, relatable characters, but 
it's something that you can also achieve with the good music cue and a few dots. And, you know, if, if that doesn't make sense, you should look at the game Loneliness. You know, there's a lot of things we can do to get people to emotionally invest in, in a game. You know, if that game is Call of Duty and your, you know, your squad mates are relatable characters that you come to care about, then that makes that game more appealing and more engrossing to you. Uh, I think that that is something that is true across genders. What emotion you use is dependent on what kind of game you're making and how you're trying to draw the player in. That may not be the same across gender, but emotional investment leading to investment in the game, I think, is something that is uh, a human quality, not a gender-specific quality. Using Super Mario 3D World as an example yet again, I had an emotional response to that game. I found it to be a lot of fun, and I enjoyed playing the game, and I looked forward to when I would, would be playing the game. But the characters, the story, I was not emotionally invested in them. I knew how the story would end. I didn't care if Mario fell into a pitfall or a pit trap, other than knowing that I would have to redo the last minute or so of the game. I was not emotionally invested in the characters or the story. I still had a great time playing the game. A game that I did have an emotional investment in was Chrono Trigger. And I remember that game fondly decades later, as many people do, because they think about the plot and the narrative and how the characters interacted with each other and the consequences to their actions on the game's characters. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's room for both kinds of games. One game was very intentionally designed to have an emotional response and investment, and the other game was designed to be fun, which is a kind of emotion, but not really the intentional, substantial kind that Chrono Trigger had. Is there not room for both kinds of games in this industry? Or, I mean, is there an argument against just using video games for mindless fun? I mean, there probably is, but it's not an argument that I would make. You know, there's a lot of times when I get home from a rough day and I want to play a game that's going to soothe me and make me happy and, you know, not make me think overly. Or, you know, while I'm binge-watching something on uh, on Netflix and I want to play, you know, an MMO that I'm going to get satisfaction from grinding on, but, you know, not really engage emotionally with what's going on. But, you know, as I get older, I often find myself looking for something more. And I think that more and more games are being designed with that kind of careful thought and purpose that uh, Sherry Gardner-Ray was, was talking about. And I think that that shift and people's emotional reactions to it are you know, one of the root causes between, like, or with the Gamergate situation. It's something that can be uncomfortable when you sit down thinking you're going to play um, Super Mario World 3D and you end up playing Limbo. You know, it's it's not going to be what you expected and you know, that falling into a pit trap is suddenly something way more emotionally traumatic to you. If that's not what you're expecting and not what you want, then, you know, I can see people developing a resistance to, to seeing those kind of games happen. Of course, there is an argument to be made for games that do make you uncomfortable, whether it's by moving up or down in the Pyramid of Power, or, for example, playing a survival horror game. One of my favorite games of all time was Silent Hill Shattered Memories, because it played very specifically on a childhood fear that I apparently still have in my subconscious. And playing that game made me relive this terrible fear that I had as a child. And I loved it. You know, I mean, that game really resonated with me. And that a game could have that effect on me was really powerful, I thought. Yeah, you think it really is. It's, it's interesting how much expectation and presentation will affect how someone experiences a game. You know, you had 
from seeing Silent Hill in the title, you, you knew what you were getting into when you went and played the game. The degree to which it affected you and the specific issues that it played on weren't maybe something that you were aware of ahead of time, but you were going into it looking for that kind of an experience. And, you know, some games will do that. Some games are, are very clear about the, what they're presenting. And you have other games like maybe Spec Ops The Line, where, you know, you could very easily pick that up expecting Call of Duty. And when halfway through the game, you know, it reveals that that's not what's going on. You know, you're, you're being sucker punched. Some games are going to do that intentionally, right? That's what they've set out to do. And some people are going to love them for that. And some people are going to get very upset. As we see more and more games that do that kind of thing and a wider diversity of games out there, people are going to eventually, I think, relax and gravitate towards the genres that they're interested in and avoid the things that they don't want to see. Uh, right now, you know, gamers are used to liking all games, right? That's it, it, saying, I'm a gamer, I play games. They're, you're not differentiating on, on genre. I mean, you may. You may say I'm a fighting game player, but you know, a lot of people like all games. And then when there's suddenly people presenting them with games that they don't like or telling them that games that they don't like are good games, they're finding that alienating. Speaking of seeing and talking about things you'd rather not, your presentation brought up a point that's been in the back of my mind for several months now and which I've been hesitant to really bring into the light because I feel like I'm no longer going to be able to have my cake and eat it too. The fact that games can reinforce social systems and gender roles is an inherent assumption in the feminist critique of games, such as Anita Sarkeesian's. But if that's a valid method on which to critique games, do we also need to consider that violent games can make us violent or can reinforce societal norms about violence? Gamers have always said, look, I play Grand Theft Auto and I didn't become a wild gunman any more than playing Farmville turned me into a farmer. And, you know, whenever the mass media try to associate video games with violent behavior, we are very quick to step in and say these are two discrete things. They're not correlated. But if we can critique video games for being sexist, does that mean we also need to critique games for being violent and having a similar effect on their audience? Okay, so, you know, this is a complicated question. Absolutely, and to clarify, neither of us are psychologists. Sure. I don't think that Street Fighter causes fighting in the streets, right? But it's interesting that the fighting game community has, you know, such problems with its toxicity and, uh, and sexism. I'm not implying that there's causation there, right? Like, playing fighting games making you sexist is not something I'm saying. But when you look at, you know, games that have really toxic communities or that the, the, the communities that form around them are behaving in ways that are kind of atypical. It's interesting. And I'm just saying that we should have more research into those things. But there has been a lot of research over the years. One of your points in your presentation was that the effects of games on players need serious impartial study. But there has been a lot of study on these topics. So what additional study do you feel is necessary or what approaches have we not yet considered? So, I mean, it's true that there's starting to be many studies on games. Um, it's, you know, it's been slow in coming, but, but there are more and more of them. But there's problems with, with most of them. And you'll, you'll try to cite a study that seems to say something, and 
somebody will respond to that by critiquing the methodology of the study, and you look at it, and they have a point. When I say that, that the studies have problems, I don't mean that they're bad or that we should disregard, or disregard them. One example, there was a study that presented a bunch of, um, of participants with sexist images of women from various different video games. And then it tested their attitudes through, I think it was using word association. It's a study that's been done with other forms of media, um, television, magazine ads, and so on. Uh, they used a control group of participants that were shown non-sexist images of women that weren't from games. The study was done by a grad student, and it had something like 117 participants. And it showed a strong correlation, not causation, between viewing the images and a shift in the responses that were expressed towards having negative views of women. The study didn't make any inflated claims, um, and there was nothing wrong with it. It even suggested that further study in, you know, in this vein would be interesting, but it did have problems. It wasn't looking at the effects of playing games. It was looking at the effects of just viewing a fictitious character. And it had a really small sample size. Its control was in a different median than the stimulus. And that was you know, somewhat intentional for that particular study. But looking at that kind of an example, you would want to have another study that had people play video games that you know, had sexist representations and one that's, that didn't. You'd want to have a sample size of thousands of participants, and you'd want to run the study in various different geographic locations around the world to see, you know, how broad uh, the effects were. So for every study that's been done and that you can look at now, we need more that expand upon it, and then we need others that try to refute it. You know, we, we may have many studies, but we have a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of studies that have been done on television and other media. And even when you look at those studies, you know, the results can be unclear. So we really do need more. I can appreciate why we may not have attained that volume or quality of study yet, though. You mentioned one study done by a grad student, and a grad student just doesn't have the resources to scale up and do a study of the scope that you're suggesting. That's not, to, that's not an excuse. That's not to say that we shouldn't try to do it because it's hard. I'm just saying that a lot of studies have not been given the resources necessary to really produce meaningful results. I think that that's completely true. Um, and I think it's something that will change. I mean, it's, you know, game studies as, as something that really exists in academia is, you know, frightfully new. When I went to school for games, there, you know, there, there weren't even game design programs, let alone game studies programs. You know, now you have programs like the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT that, you know, says we're going to study film and we're going to study television and we're going to study games because they're media too. And so as there's academic acceptance of games as something that are worthwhile to study, there are going to be more studies. And you know, as game developers, we need to be ready to listen to them because some of them are going to refute things that we believe and have been using to design our games. And that's going to make us feel bad. And we need to deal with it and be willing to accept good science. It seems to me that academic programs studying video games seem to be lagging behind academic programs that make video games. I don't know if that's typical of other media. I don't know if there were programs to, for film and TV and radio before there were studies of those fields, I, I wouldn't be surprised if video games are following the same pattern as those other media, but it almost seems like the technology is racing ahead whether or not we're ready for it. Yeah, I mean, the development of the technology of games has been so much more rapid than the development of the technology for any other medium and, and the spread and adoption of it. 
you know, it's it's not surprising that it's taking the time that it is. But, you know, we will get there. So the development of programs studying games, you know, it, it is something that is just now coming into existence. And the first programs that you saw in terms of game development were very practical, skills-oriented programs. You know, it was the evolution of um, graphic design into, you know, doing art for games and the evolution of hard computer science into how to program a game engine. All of those mechanical processes came first because they were so clearly related to the fields that um, that had spawned them. It hasn't been until a number of years later, after a school had a game development program that studied coding, that they developed a game design program that, you know, looked at, at something that's a little bit, you know, perceived as fluffier or, or less academic. And then you have to go even beyond that until you start having this um, body of work out there to analyze that appears to need analysis. You can analyze Super Mario Brothers or Pong, you know, for that matter. But you, you kind of have to stretch a little bit. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, but that doesn't look very important. But when you have a multi-billion dollar industry and you have games coming out that are clearly sophisticated and interesting and complex... The arguments of whether or not games are art and whether or not they're worthy of being studied fade away. And I definitely want to have that discussion of games as art in a later episode of this podcast. But for this topic, I want to go toward the end of your Boston Fig presentation. One of the last slides was titled A Few Caveats, and it brought up four bulleted points that left me wondering, then what's the point of all of this? Your caveats were that you're not advocating for educational games, games for change, and you have to accept that my game is not going to change the world and your game is not going to change the world. So given the apparent inability of any game to influence our society and our culture, what exactly are you advocating for? So first first of all, I'm not saying there shouldn't be educational games or games for change. I make educational games and there have been some amazing games for change and other ones that were poorly conceived, but those are important things and people should continue to make them. That's just not the focus of what I was saying. What I'm talking about is embedding the kind of systems that are driving social capital and the kind of thought that, that can focus that into all of our games. You know, you said, well, you know, if, if playing one game isn't going to be able to change the world, then what's the point? Well, how many people do you know who have just played one game? Good point. I, I don't think I know anybody who's done just that. It's not that one game can possibly be some transformative, empowering juggernaut, but we're doing this so that the aggregate weight of all the games that someone plays over their lifetime makes their life better, and that the aggregate weight of all the lives of all of gamers make the world better. You know, we may not, in and of ourselves see the effect of the things that we do, right? We may work for that big corporation pushing against a wall and feeling like we've made no difference. But those thousand design decisions that we slipped into the game and those design decisions that we got pulled from that game make this small incremental shift. And the thousand games that someone plays that have been influenced in that way do have an effect. And, you know, that's something that is to me self-evident. I'm not rejecting the desire to try to disprove that. I welcome that science um, and that study. But 
I, I strongly believe that it's something that's true and that it's something that we as game developers have the responsibility to pursue. But there is an inherent value judgment in what kinds of games we should be making and what effect they should have on society. When you're suggesting a change or an evolution in gaming media, what you're saying is that games are not currently teaching the social values and capital that you want to see exhibited in our current society. There may be some people who say, this is exactly the world I want to live in. I want to live in a world that's violent and sexist, and the games that I play represent that. So what is the world that you're suggesting that we live in? What are you saying games should be doing that they're not? I'm saying that games should be intentional about what they're doing. I'm, I'm not even going to try to say what messages, what those messages should be. I think that's something that inherently has to be up to the conscious of the individual game developer. You know, if you're a developer or a player that is happy with the state of the world, that doesn't see any problem with the, the sexism and racism and poverty that surrounds us, then I, I guess I don't have an argument for you. You know, you shouldn't change anything and you should fight against that change because you've got what you want. And, you know, I, I support your right to do that. But the issues that that are important to me are ones that of, of, you know, social equality and, you know, social justice. I know that's now become a dirty word, bizarrely. But, um, you know, I think those things are important. And I will, for the rest of my career and hopefully the rest of my life, focus on bringing those values intentionally into the games that I make. And I don't think that all games should embody my values. I think that that's, that's a terrible idea. The world's a complicated place, and I certainly don't understand it well enough to make some kind of a value judgment on, on what values you put into your games. All I'm asking is that when you make a design decision, when you produce a game, when you play a game, you think about what you're putting into that game, and you think about what you're getting out of it. I'm impressed that as well as you know this subject well enough to come on the show and speak as an expert on it, you're also very aware of what you don't know. And I don't know that a lot of people necessarily are comfortable having that distinction in their lives. Yeah, it's it's something that the internet regularly makes very clear to me. There's so much more information available to us that I it becomes very difficult to think that you know everything. You know, I think I get that from being a programmer and looking at all there is to know about computers and the fact that I can't know it all, that I'm not going to be an expert on all of the technical aspects of, of my job. And it seems silly for me to think then that as a game designer that I can be an expert on all the different aspects of game design or as a sociologist that I can understand all of the cultures in the world and all of the issues that there are. You know, in the last two years, I've spent a lot of time trying to get a grasp on feminist theory because it's become more and more important in games. And, you know, that's, I was an intelligent, educated person. And, you know, I've spent two years voraciously reading and don't feel like I have a handle on that field. And that's one field among dozens and hundreds that are out there. So, you know, it's, it's something that people are increasingly having to become comfortable with or, you know, spend their lives being very hostile towards the reality that they live in. 
And I hope it's not the latter, because as soon as you admit or acknowledge that you don't know something, you can start rectifying that, just like you have with feminist theory, or I have by hosting this podcast. Everybody I bring on this podcast, I'm doing so very selfishly, because I want to learn what they know. And and that means that I admit that, you know, I am an ignorant show host, which I hope makes me a good show host. <laughs> I, I really think so. I think that that attitude is something that is really important for us, you know, all to embrace. And, and it can be, in the environment of the internet, very easy to, you know, to be strongly opinionated without consequence. But, you know, as game designers or, you know, people in the media, acknowledging our areas of ignorance and modeling being welcoming of uh, being shown that we're wrong and uh, being happy and excited to... Uh, to be corrected about things. Uh, it's hard and it's not, you know, it's not something that everyone's going to be able to do easily, but I think that we'll make better games if we do that. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And I'm looking forward to playing those games. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this insightful knowledge with our listeners and especially with me. I really appreciate it. When I saw the title of your talk at Boston Fig, I knew it was a talk I wanted to attend. I think it may have been a late addition to the program because there wasn't much description about it. But just from the title, The Nature and Purpose of Games Towards Social Justice, I knew that this was going to be looking at games at a more than superficial level. And I, I really appreciate you going to Boston Fig and putting this out there and continuing to speak about it. I'm glad that you were enjoyed the talk and found it insightful. It was standing room only. I was seated on the floor in the aisle to attend your talk. And I think that as much as, as anything else gives me hope. Seeing the, the crowd there being welcoming to these ideas and not bristling. You know, in the face of watching the internet explode with Gamergate, seeing a, a room full of game developers who are, you know, the upcoming luminaries of the field all embracing this kind of idea, you know, it, it gives me hope. So on that hopeful note, let's wrap up this show. If anybody wants to learn more about this topic, Chris, I understand you'll be sending me some links that we'll be putting in the show notes on polygamer.net. People are welcome to check those out. And if they want to drop you a line, they can do so through the Polygamer website. Just click contact us and I'll be happy to forward that to you. Do you have any social media presences that you wish to advertise or any websites? Not specifically. I certainly will be happy to respond to any inquiries through Polygamer. Yeah, I, I have generally avoided social media for uh, hopefully painfully obvious reasons. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I, I'm glad that you're not embroiling yourself in these scandals, but I'm also sorry that I, I hope you don't feel that you can't participate in social media. No, no, that's, um, I certainly do. You know, I just try to manage that presence and, uh, as much as possible, be part of the solution and not get caught up in, in the frustration and anger that is currently an unfortunate reality of, of our industry. I understand. Many people have walked away from social media in the past few months, and you don't have that concern. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should. Well, thank you again, Chris. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Hit another point. <laughs> well, that's why this is an edited podcast. <laughs>